0: All right, well good morning again. It's great to see all you guys. We're so glad uh, to have some of our families back this morning. We want to thank Steph and Tina for their hard work in reopening our children's ministry. Uh, I've run two marathons uh, in my life. The first was a full marathon back in like 2008, I think. I was a lot younger, a lot stronger. I had a lot more black hair and I could run a lot further. The second one was a few years back, uh, when I did the Long Beach Half Marathon with our World Vision team. And both experiences were were actually pretty similar. Uh, If you've never run in a marathon or a long race before, I can uh, tell you a little bit that you might not realize Uh, they are very, very long and very, very tiring. And there's a lot of ups and downs. You know, there are moments during the marathon where I felt really good, I felt like I could run through a wall, I was in that runner's high, I felt blessed to be outside, blessed to be running. And there were times where I was just so tired, like I literally wanted to just lie down on the ground where I was and rest or wait for somebody to come pick me up or just die there. That's, that's how tired I was, I just lie down and just stop. But despite the ups and downs of the race, the thing that I'll never forget, the thing that I'll always remember most is the feeling of finishing. When you run across that finish line, finish 13 miles or 26 miles, there's just this kind of unbelievable surge of joy and accomplishment and relief. The first time I remember, like, I, I felt this urge to you know, raise my arms like I was in a sports movie or something, but you know, there's a lot of people there, it seemed kind of weird, so I didn't do it. But that was kind of how triumphant, how joyful I felt in that moment. Now, this morning, we are coming to the end of a very long journey. Today is our last week of our Romans series, and it's, it's been a long time. It's been nine months, 34 sermons, 16 chapters, 433 verses. I didn't go through it and count it by hand. I looked on Google, but apparently that's how many verses Romans is. And you know, I hope there have been more ups than downs. I hope you've been encouraged by what you've learned about the gospel. I hope there weren't any moments where you wanted to lie down on the floor and die because it was so long. But as we cross the finish line, as we reach the end, Paul invites us to finish this story on a note of joy, on a note of accomplishment. And not an accomplishment of something that we've done, not that Finishing one book of the Bible together is that big of a deal, but to recognize and celebrate what God has done, to see God for who he is and respond. So let's go ahead and jump into our passage this morning. It's a pretty short one. These are the last three verses of Romans, uh, chapter 16, verses 25 to 27. Paul writes, Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. To the only wise God be glory forever. This passage is what's referred to as a doxology. It's kind of a formal, uh, liturgical expression of praise, oftentimes meant to be uh, repeated in a corporate setting. And this is actually kind of an unusual way to finish a letter like this. In fact, if you look in your Bibles, you would see that Romans is the only one of Paul's letters that ends on a doxology. And this is unusual, and so some scholars have suggested, well, maybe it was added later, maybe some editor put it in. But when you think about the overall argument of Romans, when you think about what Romans is about, this doxology fits perfectly. It is perfectly fitting to end this letter on a chorus of praise. Because what Paul is doing is he's reminding us of what we've learned and how we're meant to respond. He's reminding us of why we should celebrate, why we should worship, and how, how we should worship, how we should celebrate. And I think this simple praise chorus really captures all of it. To the only wise God be glory forever. Now at the heart of this celebration is one specific characteristic of God. Uh, It's his wisdom. As we consider what we've learned in the gospel, we consider this invitation to glorify God. Paul tells us, this is what I want you to think about. This is what I want to put before you is God's wisdom, that he is wise. And I don't know, this, this might surprise you a little bit, because God's wisdom isn't necessarily like the first thing we think about when we think about the characteristics of God, it's probably not one of our favorite attributes. You know, we talk about God's love, his grace, his power, his goodness. But God's wisdom probably falls somewhere further down the list. There aren't a lot of worship songs that talk about God's wisdom. I don't know if that's because it's a hard word to rhyme or because it's just not something that people are that excited about. But despite that, it's his wisdom that is at the core of the message of Romans. It's kind of the big idea that holds this entire letter together. Now before we continue, we have to answer a pretty important question. What does Paul mean by wisdom? What is the wisdom of God? Now I don't know about you, but when I think about wisdom, when I hear that word, I kind of think of like, a, like an old man, a wise old man who knows a lot and gives really good advice. Maybe somebody like Gandalf the Wizard, or Yoda, Master Jedi, Owl from Winnie the Pooh. I'm not lying, that was like the first thing I thought of when I thought of someone who was wise. But we think of someone, right, who understands the world, understands the way people work, understands the way things work and is thus able to see the best way to do things, see the best way to get something done. And the biblical concept of wisdom or the wisdom of God is pretty similar. In his classic book, Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer describes wisdom as the ability to devise perfect ends and to achieve those ends by the most perfect means. Wisdom sees everything in focus, everything in proper relation to all, and is thus able to work towards predestined goals with flawless precision. I think the biblical concept of wisdom is kind of like the skill of a master craftsman. I've shared this a couple times in the past few years, that my best friend Josh sold his house and bought a laundromat. And this was kind of a part of his ministry vision. He believed this was a way to engage uh, the community, to uh, be a blessing uh, to those who are in need. And so one of the big projects that he was working on a few months back was to build a big community table that would sit at the center of the laundromat. And he thought this was kind of at the core of his vision, this place where the community could gather, rather than fill the store with all machines and make more money, he thought this is a place for families to sit together, for kids to be able to come and do homework, for fellowship to happen. And he wanted to build this table himself with uh, pieces of old wood that he had torn up from a, a hardwood floor in his old house. And so every time he described this process, this painstaking process of making this table to me. Every time he talked about, you know, how he'd have to cut each piece of wood into the right size, the right length, uh, to kind of find the right pattern and mixture of the kind of different colors and grains of the wood so that it would look nice. He'd have to seal it and finish it so that it would, you know, be durable and it would kind of take on the right tone that he wanted. Every time he told me about this, I just thought, dude, just buy a table. That sounds like so much work. We could go to Home Goods and be done with this in 10 minutes. But he he had his heart set on this. And he had a plan for it for how he would build it. And so he did, and much to my surprise, it turned out pretty good. I have a few a couple pictures of this table. Yeah, right. Thank you. Okay, I was worried you guys weren't he might be watching, so that's, that's very nice of you guys. I think he'll be happy. If you can't hear Josh, they'll like, Oh, wow, It's amazing. But when you look at this, this is a craftsman demonstrating wisdom. The finished product is evidence of the character of the builder. If I didn't tell you anything else, and I just said, hey, my friend built this table, you'd think, wow, he has some skill, he's got some ability. And this is perhaps the thing that Paul is most interested in saying about God in Romans. Of all the different things he tells us about God, he wants us to see God's wisdom. And he says the finished product that I'm going to show you, this gospel, is powerful evidence to the character of our God. Specifically powerful evidence to his wisdom. That God is this master craftsman who planned and built and crafted and shaped the perfect story for all of creation. And when you really look at the way Romans is written, kind of the way the argument develops, the way he unpacks the gospel, you see that this is clearly the case, that he's trying to show us the perfection of God's purposes and his plans and his wisdom. And we're not going to go through each different chapter and each different verse. You can kind of look through it later if you want to. But clearly, Paul is going to painstaking effort to show us the wisdom, the plan, the perfection of what God has made in the gospel. He wants us to show us all these little, smaller, interconnected pieces, these, each individual piece of wood that fits onto the table and makes it functional and beautiful verse by verse chapter by chapter it's like he's exploring each different dimension of the table each different piece and saying hey this is how it fits God's promise to Abraham to be a blessing here's how it fits here's how God has dealt with the issue of sin that's one piece this is how the law and the gospel fit together This is how we find obedience in the power of the Spirit. This is how two people, Jew and Gentile, come together as one body. And he paints this picture of this beautiful mosaic coming together in one story, in one big, beautiful table. And as we do this, as we come to the end of the letter, as we begin to stand back and be able to see the finished product as a whole... We recognize and we marvel at this masterpiece. Look at this gospel. Look at what God has made. But Paul wants to make sure that as great as it is to understand the gospel, and I don't want to undersell that, he says, don't forget what this tells you about the builder, about the master craftsman. Don't miss what you can learn about the only wise God. And we see him actually do this throughout the letter, that as he kind of shows us different pieces of the puzzle, as he shows the gospel coming together, he stops and he says, hey, wait a minute, let's look and see what this tells us about God. At the end of chapter 11, Paul has just kind of unpacked probably one of the biggest pieces in the table, this relationship between Jew and Gentile and how God has brought them both together by his grace, by his mercy. And as he finishes this, he says, hey, Look at what God has done. Look at this amazing thing that God has done, bringing two peoples together. Now let's think about who he is. Romans 11, verse 33. Another doxology, Paul breaks out into song, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsel, Counselor. Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Once again, same thing. Look at what God has done. Look at who God is. Glory to the only wise God. And this truth, this core characteristic of God, his wisdom that we see in the gospel, this is meant to be a deeply personal, deeply practical idea. It's meant to be encouraging, comforting, assuring for God's people. Because if God is wise over all of human history, if God is wise enough to bring together the entire plan of salvation for the redemption of all people, Jew or Gentile, if God is wise enough to bring all things together to write the perfect story for all of creation, then surely we can trust that he is wise enough to build and shape and perfect our own lives. Surely God is a good and wise enough craftsman for my life and for your life. See, I think one of the reasons why life can be so difficult, why it can be so challenging and so stressful, one of the reasons why the Christian life is so hard, living lives of obedience and faith, one of the reasons why this is so hard is because there are so many claims for wisdom in our lives, in the world around us. So many goals worth pursuing. So many different ways of getting there. So many paths that promise us this is the way. So many false gods that say this is really important. This will make you happy. This will give you peace. If you do it this way, if you order your life this way, if you shape your life to look like this, everything will be good. And I think chief among these false gods of wisdom is our own hearts, our own selves. We want to believe. We want to kind of look at all these different wisdom paths and say, I can figure this out. I can decide what's best. I can shape my own life. I'm smart. I'm wise. I understand things. My paths, my purposes, my plans, they're the best way. But honestly, I don't, I don't know about you, but I find so often, I am often reminded that they are not. What I find myself realizing so many times, over and over and over again, is how flawed my wisdom is, how often times I take the wrong path, how often times I simply don't know what, what should I do. I think when I, when I was younger, you know, when you're young, you think, you know, when I get older, when I'm a real grown-up, everything will make sense. I'll have it all figured out. I'll know what to do. I'll get on a path, and everything will be easy. But as I get older and older and older, and as I keep waiting and waiting to be a real grown-up, it just dawns on you eventually that that's not how life works. We are not designed to be the arbiters of wisdom. We're not made to be the master craftsmen of our own lives. And so what ends up happening is we experience anxiety discouragement as we travel down one path and then another and then another. And so one of the truest blessings of kingdom life is having a God who is both king and craftsman. Having a God who has proven his wisdom. Proven that he builds only good things. Proven that he knows the best way to get things to where they want they, where they need to be. Perhaps the most freeing truth in this life is simply that God makes better tables than you do. He makes big, grand, beautiful tables like the gospel, like creation itself. But he also makes Really cool, small, unique ones out of the lives of people who trust Him. And part of understanding God's wisdom and trusting God's wisdom is recognizing that it's a lot of different pieces coming together, and we don't always understand how the pieces fit right away. There are going to be pieces that we look at and we say, Well, that can't fit. That's too big. That's too jagged. That's the wrong color. That's gonna make my life hard. That's gonna make my life weird. That's gonna make things more difficult. That doesn't bring me any more security or any more happiness right now. That piece brings pain and struggle. But what the gospel reminds us of is that God puts the pieces together and in the end, the finished product is always good. It's always beautiful. It's always a masterpiece. And again, what we have in the gospel is this ultimate proof of this one thing that God said, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it perfectly. And he did. Uh, Tozer says this about God's wisdom. He says, to believe actively that our heavenly father constantly spreads around us providential circumstances that work for our present good and our everlasting well-being brings to the soul a veritable benediction. He's saying that makes us feel really, really good. Most of us go through life praying a little, planning a little, jockeying for position, hoping but never quite certain of anything, and always secretly afraid that we will miss the way. This is a tragic waste of truth and never gives rest to the heart. There is a better way. To repudiate our own wisdom, take instead the infinite wisdom of God. God has charged himself with full responsibility for our eternal happiness and stands ready to take over the management of our lives the moment we turn in faith to him. There's a better way that we are invited to experience every day through faith. And this really is the invitation that Paul lays before us in Romans. It's recognizing the wisdom of God and stepping into it as we walk in faith and obedience. And so as we come to the close of the letter, as Paul finishes this story, he wants to invite invite us to this simple act. To offer glory, to give glory to the only wise God. And I think he has at least two things in mind, probably more, but at least two things. The first is to give God glory with our lips and our hearts, to simply recognize God's wisdom, his perfect plan, and all that comes with it, his love, his power, his sovereignty, his grace, to see it and to worship him in light of it, to proclaim. That he is the only wise God. And when we worship, we do so in light of what God has done and who he is. But I think more than that, what Paul wants us to do, what Paul has in mind for us when he says glory to the only wise God is he wants us to give God the glory with our lives. And he's told us that already. He said in Romans 12 that what is our spiritual act of worship? It is to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. The true recognition of wisdom is worship with our lives. Uh, This is Peak to Peak. Uh, It's a gondola system in Whistler, British Columbia that connects Whistler Mountain to nearby Blackcomb Mountain. And this was the first lift to ever connect two side-by-side mountains. It travels 2.73 miles from one peak to the other. And as you travel across the valley, you can see there's this long stretch of unsupported cable where you are held between two towers that are 1.88 miles apart. At its highest point, you sit 1,430 feet above the valley floor, which is a world record. Now, I've been on Peak to Peak maybe five or six times in my life. It's one of the coolest things I've done. It's one of my favorite places to be. It's beautiful. There's awesome hiking uh, on each side of the gondola. But every time I see it, every time I go here, and I kind of, from, from down below, you can see these gondolas just going across this, this rope or this cable. Every time I see it, I'm just amazed that someone could look at these two mountains and say, you know, let's connect those with a long cable and let's have some gondolas go across it. That they were able to envision this idea, to plan this idea, to build this idea. And as amazed as I am, as much as I can marvel at this feat of engineering and construction, Ultimately, the the biggest compliment that I could give to the builders of Peak to Peak isn't to kind of sit around and look at it or to talk about it with my friends. It's not to memorize facts about it. But the ultimate compliment, the ultimate honor I could give to these builders is to simply step into a gondola and enjoy the ride, to put my kids on it, to trust what they have made and enjoy what they've built the greatest glory that we can give to God ultimately isn't anything that we can say. It isn't anything that we can sing. It is to step into the path of his wisdom, to acknowledge that he is king, to acknowledge that he is the master craftsman, to sit down at the table that he has prepared for us, And so as we close out this series, as we think about what we've learned, I pray that you would see God's perfect wisdom in the gospel, that you would see and recognize that God's plans are perfect, his promises are perfect, they never fail. If you didn't see that in this series, then I pray that you would go back to God's word and you would search for it until you find it because it is there waiting for you. Ultimately, it's the story that holds this entire book together. And I pray that as you recognize that wisdom, that you would pursue God's perfect wisdom in your life. And that as a church, that we would proclaim together to the only wise God, be glory forever. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your perfect plan. We thank you that you took all these broken pieces of existence and our lives and you made them whole. You made them into something good. And we thank you that you've invited us to be a part of that. And God, I pray that we would see your perfect wisdom That we would see it in the world around us in creation. That we would see it in your word. That we would see it in the gospel. That we would ultimately see it in Jesus. And that we would begin to see it and pursue it in our own lives. God, we know that faith is not easy. But we know that you are worthy of it. Thank you for being good. Thank you for being loving. Thank you for being powerful. Thank you for being sovereign, God. We thank you for being wise. We love you and we worship you this morning. We love you and we worship you every day, God. In Jesus' name, amen.